I'm Brian Elliott. You're listening to Medstead Memoirs. And that song you hear in the background, it's called Luana, by a singer-songwriter named Laura Etzen. And a little different than most singer-songwriters, she had to make a sacrifice to make this song. She had to sacrifice 30 spoons. So when I say she had to sacrifice 30 spoons, it's according to this theory spread widely online for people living with chronic illnesses. It's called the spoon theory. And before Laura explains it, I just wanted to give a quick heads up that we talked over Skype and the audio starts a bit iffy, but it does get better. Basically, people with chronic illnesses, spoons are your energy. Everyone has a certain amount of energy during the day. People who aren't sick or people with different levels of illnesses have different amounts of energy. So, for instance, I only have a certain amount of spoons during the day. Once I'm out of spoons, that's it. I have no more. So, let's say I have 10 spoons a day. Um, this is just, like, relative. I, 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 don't, I haven't thought about how many spoons I actually have during the day. But um, each activity I do is going to take a spoon. So most people don't don't have to think about this. So getting dressed, that's going to take a spoon. Taking a shower is going to take two to three spoons. Um, going for a walk is going to take spoons. Spending time with friends and um, still needing enough, needing to have enough spoons to be able to prepare yourself for errands or getting ready for the rest of the day and uh, things you need to do to prepare for tomorrow or different things like that. Everything takes a spoon, depending on how many, depending on the person. And once you're out of spoons, you're out of spoons and you're, you, you're out. Sometimes you can borrow spoons from tomorrow, but if you borrow spoons from tomorrow, you can't have those back and tomorrow you have less spoons. So with that, people with chronic illnesses constantly have to be thinking about how to spend their energy throughout the day, which most healthy human beings don't have to do that. They can kind of, you know, be spontaneous and have all these adventures and just go out and do things. And they don't really necessarily have to pay for it in the same kind of way where people with illnesses, they have to think about it consciously, make a decision on what they're going to do that day, what they're going to leave for another day, and if they're going to run the risk of borrowing spoons for tomorrow and paying the consequences of, you know, being sicker the next day for doing that. Like, for instance, when I do shows, I'm borrowing a lot of spoons from the next couple of days. So that's the spoon theory. It, it goes more into depth um, if you look it up. But it, it really captures what it's like to be chronically ill and not having as many spoons as you wish. In this episode, Laura spends some of her spoons telling us her story. And it's one that doesn't really make us future doctors look great. So there's a very common saying in medicine that if you hear hoofbeats, think horses and not zebras. 
horses being very common diagnoses, and zebras being the rare ones, like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a bit rare. And in most scenarios this makes sense, but Lars' story is in most scenarios. And I shall tell you, sometimes when you're listening for hoofbeats and keep thinking of horses, maybe you should just take another second and listen to the patient instead. So do you want to start from the beginning? Yeah, I will go from the beginning. That's why I wrote it. So ever since her childhood, she had a long list of symptoms that didn't seem to quite fit together. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. When I was younger, um, when I was like a kid, like really little, I would get really weird symptoms like hives and the size of baseballs. I'd be hospitalized for weird Um, things. That kind of progressed into stomach issues by the time I got a little older and in grade school. And there was also bladder issues. I started then also having severe muscle pain and aches and just other weird symptoms started to develop, um, including severe stomach issues again and vomiting. I had to go on a liquid diet. I could not eat solid foods. Um, I was probably on a liquid diet for almost a year. I needed a feeding tube, but I said no to getting one, which was really stupid of me. Um, because at that age, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to have that. I didn't want to accept that reality. Going on from that, you know, having these severe stomach issues, I, we finally find out that I have H. pylori, and H. pylori is a bacteria that causes. Um, uh, just a lot of havoc on your stomach. And I had it for a long time because my sister had it the year before, and we weren't even finding this out till a year later for me. So how long we I had it, we don't know, but it was a very long time, and it caused destruction in my stomach, and it caused me to have gastritis and to have stomach bleeding and just like my stomach lining thinning and still also being extremely acidic. So I started treatment for that after, you know, my first colonoscopy, endoscopy, those type of things. And um, I was also really stubborn about medication, so I didn't always take it because it had to be a liquid form. And I was never, you know, oh, I don't want to take this. I don't know. I was kind of a stupid kid. <laughs> so I was very stubborn and defiant. Um, but eventually, you know, it started getting better. But the fainting and being really tired was not like I I just couldn't get out of bed and um, that was really difficult and I went to a rheumatologist Um, wish I could remember her name (laughs) she's really she's a really she's really great and like I went in there and you know they did a bunch of testing on me and they said you have fibromyalgia and I'd seen commercials about it. I thought it was for old people. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's a, you know, a pain disorder that causes widespread pain. And um, there's been kind of controversies on it where some people are like, oh, it's caused by, like, stress and stuff. And others are like, no, actually, there's actually physical findings that it's actually, like, a, a brain sending missed signals. And anyway, so I had that diagnosis along with complex regional pain syndrome. And my diagnosis of the orthostatic hypotension falling into the dysautonomia category. Um, Along with that, I was diagnosed with sinus tachycardia. 
and I had been having sinus tachycardia for a long time, and all the doctors were like, well, you know, it's just sinus tachycardia, did not say that right, sinus tachycardia, and it shouldn't be causing you issues. Um, it's probably just anxiety or stress because, you know, it's just sinus. And at first I was like, okay, but after a while, you know, when it would just be very elevated, I'd be like, okay, I, I don't feel anxious right now, and it's really high. I think you're wrong. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, so when I went to Stanford, we finally had the, this is actually a problem. Your sinus node isn't working, which, you know, controls your heart rate and isn't caused by anxiety. And so I'm like, finally, people are listening to what I'm saying. Um, so after that, you know, I was, I had mixed emotions of, yay, they know what's wrong with me with, oh my God, I have all these issues. Um, and so I kind of fell into this severe depression for a while. And I developed, I started getting really bad anxiety, afraid to go out because I didn't want to pass out in public. I hated, you know, people that I knew before I got really sick, you know, thinking of me differently. I was just afraid of them seeing me in a different light. And I was also very afraid of people not believing me because I ran into a lot of doctors that told me that it just, you know, instead of saying they didn't know what was wrong with me, they said that, you know, it's in your head and you go see a psychologist and all these different things. And it's kind of um, really difficult for someone to hear, especially when they know that um, they can they can just feel it, that that's not what it is. And how do you feel about doctors after that, where they kind of didn't believe you and recommended you see a psychologist? I was really angry and kind of hated doctors for a very long time. Um, I don't anymore, but when I was younger, it was it was very disheartening to kind of feel like what you're saying was being thrown out the window and you weren't being taken seriously. And that was just really difficult, and especially when, you know, when I started to develop depression and anxiety, it was more along the lines of because I had all of these medical issues, but they seemed to just think, oh, well, that's causing it. When it when it's like, no, I didn't have this before when these all started. So that was also another element that was really frustrating. Um, so I kind of lost faith in doctors for a while, and I stopped going to doctors for a while because I kind of just threw up my hands and said, you know what, I'm done, and didn't want to go back and kind of just try to deal with it with the medications that I had. And, um, and then I got older, and... I realized that doctors are human and that they don't always know everything. And I think the most, um, for instance, my movement specialist, which that's a branch of neurology, um, he said something to me that really had an impact on me. Where he said, you know, I believe you. There is something wrong. I just don't know how to explain it right now. And that's probably the most validating thing any of my doctors have ever told me. Instead of saying, you're crazy, it's in your head, or it's psychological, because they didn't know what it was, someone actually said, I don't know what's wrong with you. And I, and I think for some doctors, it might be a little difficult to say that because, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard not being able to know. 
and that's frustrating for them too. So um, I've also just kind of learned that there's not all bad, not, not all doctors are bad and that you can really, I mean, there are good doctors out there. You just kind of have to sort through the bad ones to find the good ones. And when you find the good ones, they're really worth keeping. We'll be back to Laura's story in just a minute. First, I just wanted to say that if you like the song Luana in the beginning of the episode, you can find a download at the link in the description. Second is our usual book recommendation for each episode. This time we recommend Every Patient Tells a Story by Lisa Sanders. The title really explains most of it, but it also describes the art of diagnosing through the stories of patients. You can check it out by clicking the link in the description, or you can listen to it for free. Just click our link to Audible in the description and get a free 30-day trial with your first download free. And now, back to the episode. I started when I was 16. I started having these odd movements after one of my last procedures that I had. And then again, after um, a tonsil... Uh, oh, God, what is it called? When you have your tonsils removed? Tonsillectomy, that's what it's called, yeah. And nobody really knew what it was. It didn't look like seizures. It didn't look like anything they'd ever seen. I was awake. Um, and they lasted for seven hours straight. They would inject me with, like, everything they could think of. And they even put me back to sleep. And I kept having them. And eventually got to the point where they had to close the curtain because I was scaring the other patients in the room. Um, so... We go on from that, and no one really knows what the hell is wrong with me. And looking back, I actually had that even before then, but it would only happen kind of like once a month. Um, and it would only happen for about maybe 10 minutes. And so it was something that I never really brought up to my doctor or really ever had a second thought about because it only happened, you know, every so often. And I already had all these other issues. When you, when you have a lot of combined medical issues, when you go to the doctors, you kind of have a whole list. You kind of just prioritize, okay, which one's the most important at this moment? And you forget the rest. So I just had these weird movement disorders. And after that, it just kept happening over and over and over every single day. And I had them almost nonstop. And it got to the point where... I was just in the ER a lot. I was, um, you know, they, they just didn't know what to do with me. And I had a lot of doctors tell me that, that we don't know what this is. Um, they labeled it as uh, psychogenic seizures for a while. And then um, I went to go see a seizure specialist and amazing doctor. And he kind of said, no, I don't, I don't think this is pseudo-seizures. Um, and he gave me, he says, I, I don't, I don't really know what it is, but I'm going to call it nonspecific paroxysmal spells. So that's kind of like, um, not really a complete diagnosis, but it was better than, you know, having the alternative, which there are people with psychogenic seizures and those are real and those are difficult and hard to live with. But I kind of just felt like that wasn't it because the treatment they were trying to do wasn't helping. And I was just like, I, I don't think this is what it is. So I kept pushing and pushing and pushing. 
And I told myself I would just keep pushing and trying to find answers. And if I didn't eventually, then I would just accept that that's what it was. But I was correct. It wasn't that. So I finally see a doctor um, who was a movement specialist. And I'm about 16 at this time, maybe 15, 20, 16, kind of around that area. And he was actually an adult specialist, but because there was no movement specialist for pediatrics at the time, well, I think still they don't have one, um, they allowed for me to see him. And he's still my doctor today, and he's phenomenal. So I went to him, and I was like, I'm having these weird movement disorders. I don't know what it is. Um, I think it might be POTS related. And by this time I had given, he, he was the one that gave me the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome diagnosis. And I, because I kept bringing it up to him, like, look, I have sinus tachycardia, I have orthostatic hypotension. It goes with neurocardiogenic syncope. These symptoms tend to go together. It makes a lot of sense if I would have this. I don't understand why I don't have a diagnosis. I have all the symptoms for it. And so, you know, they did the testing and I have it. So I, I really had to advocate for myself a lot. Um, and so he, after, you know, seeing him a couple times, he said, you know what? I think this is caused by, you know, your, your pots. I think that's having an effect on it, your nervous system because dysautonomia, which is kind of like the umbrella term for all of those diseases. Um, umbrella term meaning like when you say, um, like if someone says I have cancer, they say, what kind of cancer do you have? And not to say that this is anything like cancer, it's not. But um, that is an example of dysautonomia being what kind of dysautonomia do you have? And there are people that have just pure dysautonomia where their autonomic nervous system doesn't work. And... Um, I kind of fall into the lines of that, too, where dysautonomia is dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. So that's why, like, my sinus node doesn't work, my blood pressure, I get high blood pressure and low blood pressure. I get tachycardia and I get bradycardia. Um, my body doesn't regulate temperature really well. My pupils dilate really big, causing, like, migraines and all these other issues. And people always think I'm high because <laughs> they're huge. Um, I'm not, I swear. <laughs> well, actually, probably now, because a lot of my medications do make me high, but that's another story. Um, so I go to him, and, you know, he's like, yeah, you probably have that, and I'm diagnosed with neuropathy, autonomic neuropathy. And, you know, I, I still feel like, you know, something's missing. This isn't, you know, he, he, he said to me, you know, I don't know how to explain it. I don't think there is an explanation for it at this time. And that wasn't good enough for me. So I requested to go back to Stanford. And this time, instead of going to rheumatology, I wanted to go to the autonomic clinic and see Dr. Giarde, who is a phenomenal doctor in the dysautonomia spectrum world. And so I go and I see him. And, you know, I have all these, this family history with him because a lot of people in my family have a lot of medical problems. And so it was kind of really easy for him to, you know, go through all of it and be like, oh, wow, you know, connect the dots. So I see him, we have the appointment, we talk, and then next is my testing portion where I have autonomic testing and we go in and I have a tilt table test, which 
is my was my second tilt table test, and for someone who has a fainting disorder and tachycardia and postural problems, you know, it's not a fun test. It's almost like torture. <laughs> so they do a different couple of tests with the autonomic clinic. They do a sweat test because a lot of people with dysautonomia have irregular sweating, either more sweating or not sweating at all. Um, so they did a test like that, and then they did a breathing one. Um, I actually don't really know what that one was for, but it did make me have my, um, what we know now is dystonia, my, my shaking episodes. And he would call in, like, the resident, uh, I think they're called the residents, uh, like the med students, into the room, and they have me do it again, and I'm like, oh, making me do it again. So I'd be blowing into the tube, you know, when it goes up and you have to hold your breath and then do it again. And, you know, they're watching, you'd be like, watch, 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 take notes. And I'm like, you know, having my spasms. And, and I'm just thinking the whole time, like, oh, my God, really? You're going to make me do it again? But, hey, if it helps research, you know, okay. So after that, we have the dreaded tilt-table test. And this is the first time they were actually finally able to catch my orthostatic hypotension, because up until then, it was kind of like just, you know, we weren't able to catch it, though it was highly, you know, that's what it is. Um, but because mine changes so fast and I have the hypertension as well, it's extremely difficult to catch. So they had a super awesome blood pressure thing that went on your finger and it was really, really accurate. And it kind of does every, I want to say millisecond, but don't quote me on that because it could be wrong. And they were finally able to catch my blood pressure dropping, which, you know, <laughs> most people be like, why would you be excited about that? But for me, it's like, oh my God, finally, like I can be like to the doctors that told me it was in your head. Look, I have proof. So, um, they're finally able to catch it. And I had, um, my heart rate shot up and it shot down. I shot up and I shot down. My blood pressure went up and down and up and down and that was also one of the things that um, most people, uh, most doctors actually don't know about with POTS is that you can have actually, you don't have to faint or have low blood pressure to have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. You can actually, there's something called, I could be saying this wrong, but it's hyperarogenic postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome where you actually have high blood pressure or normal blood pressure. Um, so... That is not well known though, and that's really annoying to me still. <laughs> but um so yeah, I have the both high and low and it's crazy and I finally got diagnosed with the orthostatic hypotension, uh POTS and dystonia, which was such a relief to finally have a solid diagnosis. So I didn't know what what dystonia was at all. Um, I was diagnosed specifically myoclonic dystonia. Um, and I was also told to go to see a geneticist to see if I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So I come home from my Stanford adventure and I'm really happy at this point. I'm like, yes, finally, you know, they can stop telling me to just go to a psychologist, which, you know, psychologists are great. I think the therapy is like a magical place because, you know, it's just, I don't know, 
you get to talk about things and kind of learn how to deal with really difficult situations. So I don't mean any um, disregard on their part. But um, I was really excited <laughs> to have my diagnosis. So I go back to my motion specialist and I'm like, I got a diagnosis. And, you know, I, I say it's dystonia. And he says, oh, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so um, we do some genetic testing for that because a lot of dystonias are actually um, genetic. Unfortunately, those came back normal. But from what I was told is that we actually don't know all the genes that cause dystonia. Because um, what most doctors don't realize is there is more than just one kind of dystonia. It's There's more than just the dystonia that's the medication reaction. There's actually disorders um, that are dystonia. And a lot of the times, the cause is unknown. So um, sometimes if you're lucky, well, it's not really lucky, you know, but you'll get the, oh, it's genetic. Other times it's, we don't know why you have it, but you have it. So I got the, we don't know why you have it. Um, but, you know, we're hoping in the future that with further in medicine, we'll be able to, you know, find more genes that cause it and different things. So along with dystonia, I was also diagnosed with the, just a broad term of movement disorders because I have more than one. They're unspecified at this moment, and we're still kind of working towards figuring it out more. One of them that they're thinking I have is non-kinetic dyskinesia. Um, so we're kind of just adamantly working to kind of find balance, because even though I have all these diagnoses, there's not a lot of treatments. There's, well, sorry, I, there is treatments, but it, it is... Um, there's no cure, and it's difficult with people with so many different disorders, especially for someone like me, where every kind of medication kind of contradicts the other thing. So, for instance, for my dystonia and movement disorders, I'm on muscle relaxers. Um, that makes my Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which, and which is a geneticist, and that was like the simplest diagnosis I ever got, where they're like, I walked in there, they looked at my list, did a, like the testing and they're like yeah you have this there's like no ansets or buts about it you have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome um did they say so um they didn't waste time with the the gene because I had other family members with the stone now or sorry forgive me with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome they did um this sort of clinical testing where they, they check your joints, your skin laxity. I didn't say that right. Whatever. They check your joints and different things because there's different kinds of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And um, a physical exam will be able to tell a doctor if you have it. So um, fortunately for me, I only have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome type 3, which is the less severe of the different types of dis uh, keep wanting to say this on you. It's the less severe type of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but it still causes a lot of issues and pain. And I mean, this week I had my bilateral ankles, my elbows, my left knee, um, a bunch of different things, um, subluxed, um, partially dislocated, um, and more than just those. So it, it causes a lot of 
issues. And with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, that actually um, is a disorder. You're born with it. It's congenital. And there's not really a cure. But with it, it also causes other problems where they branch out into different syndromes. So with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, POTS is extremely common with it. Um, fainting and hypotension is extremely common. Problematalgia is extremely common. Um, I mean, there's so many different disorders that are just so common with it. That's also part of the reason why it was such an easy diagnosis, because they looked at the requirements for the disorder, not just the clinical, but also, you know, the other portions of, you know, whether other diseases and problems I have that were already diagnosed. And, you know, they were able to just easily diagnose it because of that. Um, so because of the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, for the dystonia, I'm on muscle relaxers. That makes my joints more um, loose and causes more um, dislocations, um, can cause more dislocations. And because Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, uh, part of it is the collagen in my body is um, too stretchy, so my ligaments are too stretchy and they uh, cause dislocations really easily. Um, and then going back to the dysautonomia with the POTS and the basal vagal syncope, neurocardiogenic syncope, I mean, there's so many different names for it. Um, having tachycardia and bradycardia is really difficult to manage when you have both of them, um, especially when you have high blood pressure and low blood pressure, because what do you do for low blood pressure? Okay, you raise your blood pressure, but what do you do with a high heart rate? you lower your high heart rate with a beta blocker and that lowers your blood pressure even more. So um, it's very tricky and everyone with dysautonomia, um, their treatment has to be different because their bodies are different and every dysautonomia um, is kind of unique. And that's the problem with why it's so difficult to diagnose people. Um, and people go years without finding, finding out their diagnosis. So after finally kind of getting a good idea of what was wrong with me after all of these years. Um, I got another diagnosis last year, um, and I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome almost two years ago now. So then I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, um, which is the immune um, autoimmune disorder that causes hypothyroidism, and it's basically killing my thyroid. Um, so that's one of the more minor things that's kind of easier to treat. It's just, you know, not fun. But so the thing is with having all these syndromes is they kind of branch out into other issues and I keep developing more. But oh, there you have my big long list of disorders and still continuing. They're actually testing me for more right now. <laughs> so... Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, you can share your thoughts with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can also check out our website, medsaidmemoirs.com, for a sneak peek of the next topic. There we have a sample of history and physical where the diagnosis is the next podcast topic.
Medstud Memoirs is produced by Jared Bowden and I. Laura Even is our content editor. Music is by Brandon Liu. And thanks to Josh Viner, our head of business operations. Our website is medstudmemoirs.com, and you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter.